Welcome to another episode of the Corporate Activist Podcast. Today, the topic is communication, and I've got two marvelous guests to talk about how companies communicate their positions on social and political issues. And we're also going to have a look at some case studies of companies who've gotten it wrong and give them some advice about how they could have done it better. Joining me today are Sophie Toe and Natasha Farouk, who are both based in Dubai and have a great deal of experience and expertise working in communications for global brands and outlets. Sophie is the director of the PR Co. Group, a global network of more than 100 luxury communications professionals offering best-in-class consumer and lifestyle campaigns to a notable client portfolio across offices in London, Paris, Dubai, Hong Kong, Milan, Moscow, Munich, and Shanghai. The group has long represented some of the most prestigious hospitality and lifestyle brands, including Four Seasons Hotels and Resorts, Patek Philippe, and Ferrari. Sophie's focus is on the lifestyle portfolio of clients, and her personal passion lies in female mentorship and encouraging women to take leadership roles. Sophie, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Siri. And we also have with us Natasha Farouk. Natasha is an Oxford University graduate who started off her career in content and communications within the hallowed halls of the Condé Nast publications in the UK. A short project for University of Arts London took her to the UAE, where she subsequently settled, working for top-tier magazines like Harper's Bazaar Arabia, Grazia, Hello Middle East, and Condé Nast Traveler, among other titles. Currently head of content at the Dubai Department of Economy and Tourism, the Pakistani native works as a regional freelance consultant, writer, and editor for corporations, CEOs, and websites. Welcome, Natasha. Thank you for having me. And I will mention that Sophie and Natasha are both here in their personal capacities are not speaking on behalf of their organizations. So just to start, um, perhaps you can both tell us a little bit more about your backgrounds and how you got interested in communications. So Sophie, would you like to start? Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess kind of as with everything, it makes sense when you look backwards. But I did kind of fall. I would say I very much fell into PR at the time. It wasn't kind of premeditated. Um, I was at university and I studied politics at uni. Um, and I was really into, I studied feminism. I studied kind of like international relations. I was quite engaged at university. Um, and I thought that politics would just be my kind of route. But um I just kind of felt it was the necessity of actually moving to London and the reality of getting a job quickly um, just pushed me into PR because it was very similar to what I'd been doing kind of on the sidelines, my kind of side hustles at uni. So I fell into lifestyle PR and then I just kind of was like, do you know what, like I'm in this profession, I'm just going to stick it out, I'm just going to see where this takes me. And, you know, it's been a fascinating journey, so I'm, I'm glad I stuck it out. Yeah, it sounds like it. And Natasha, what, what got you into communications? Um, very similarly, I actually did politics, philosophy and economics at university and the politics realm really fascinated me. Um, at the time, I wasn't sure where I could enter that realm because even though I was living in the UK, I was a Pakistani citizen so, and I didn't speak Urdu very fluently, so I didn't think I could go back to my home country and engage. Um, so after graduating, I decided to take a um, kind of stayed role in a bank and again, fell into publications very, very um, randomly. I just sent my CV in for a short internship for the summer before I started my real job, as it were, in a bank and um, never left. I joined Condé Nast and never left. 
So they're still waiting for you at the bank. <laughs> I think my parents are also still waiting for me to join the bank is the honest matter. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I think, you know, now both of you have really made really quite important careers in communications, both on the, the sort of um, writing side, but also on the corporate side. So it's really interesting. I think let's start looking at this issue and and talking about how brands and companies engage with communications. And so, you know, we're seeing this becoming more and more prevalent. Um, this is what we want to talk about here on The Corporate Activist and, and helping companies to do this well. So maybe what we could look at is, from your perspectives, what do you think are the challenges in this field, particularly when a company or brand wants to give a message that they're ready to take a stance or they're ready to talk about an issue. So, Sophie, what do you think on this? Where Where is the challenge that, that companies are facing? I mean, I think the challenge from the way that I see it is it's like there's been this quite big shift, right? There's been two things happening. Number one, brands have been kind of opened up to so many communications channels, right? When I started back in PR, it was like, okay, you sent out a press release and a week later, your brand kind of was in the news. Um, but now you can do a tweet in two in the morning and by, you know, 2.30 in the morning, you might have a kind of issue on your hand. So I think that's like the, the number one, ch- you know, companies have to grapple with that. And I think also the kind of, the second thing that's happening is that brands are kind of, rightly or wrongly, I think you kind of mentioned the Edelman Trust Barometer, um, rightly or wrongly kind of trust, there are kind of lots of studies out there that say trust in governments or trust in kind of NGOs is eroding. And like there's a huge amount now of trust going into companies. So all of a sudden, two things are happening. Number one, the company is like, hang on a minute. I have to communicate because my customers are so engaged on social media, on TikTok, on you know, on podcasts like this, or in the news and on, online. But also, like people are actually, you know, these Gen Zs, you know, these millennials are actually looking to us for um, real kind of truth and purpose. Um, and I, so I think it's just this kind of perfect storm where brands are like, oh my god, and we'll come on to it later, I'm sure. But it's just the the opportunity is huge. I mean, you see brands getting it wrong the whole time. So I think it's really interesting and I, I'm sure kind of COVID, like COVID sped everything up, right? And then you put all of these kind of things like your war in Ukraine to grapple with, you know, women's rights in Iran to get to terms with earthquakes. Um, so I think it's, yeah, it's a really interesting time, but I don't think it's particularly easy yeah. for these companies yeah. right now. And Natasha, from your side, what what are you seeing? Um, I agree. And I think it's also quite an interesting question as to whether you should actually raise your head above the parapet and take a stance on things or whether you should be more reactionary. I mean, even when it's reactionary, the timelines are very important. However, do you jump in or not? Um, And the other thing to think about is that a lot of companies are global. So what might work in one country might not work in another. So that's also a really important factor to think about. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there, there's really a lot to consider. And I and I think for a CEO or people who are running companies, you know, they're, they're thinking about employees, they're thinking about, you know, how do we improve our production, supply chain, you know, all kinds of things. And they don't necessarily want to be thinking about what's our stance on abortion or, you know, should we say something about our, our Russian, you know, supplier. So I think it being these kind of issues being outside the day-to-day operations can be really challenging for companies. They're like, can we just, you know, keep our head down, you know, do our business? But I think at the same time, they are hearing pressure or getting pressure from different 
level, you know, different places in society. So whether some of it's internal, some of it's external, um, but it does bring some opportunities as well. And Sophie, I'm curious if within the work that you've done, you've seen maybe one or two companies that have kind of jumped in and taken, seen this opportunity and, and taken advantage of it. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, it's it depends where you are in the world. But broadly speaking, I would say that without generalizing that the brands that are based in maybe the States or, or Canada tend to be more kind of engaged than the clients that are kind of, you know, like Dubai based or Middle Eastern based. Um, but actually, I mean, the brand that I really kind of think is doing it well of the clients that I've consulted is actually Tommy Hilfiger. Um, I think Tommy Hilfiger has been incredibly brave. Um, you know, Tommy Hilfiger, if you think about Tommy Hilfiger in the 90s, it was just about kind of like those, um, what do you call them, those jockey shorts that came above your jeans, right? And it just said Tommy Hilfiger, right? And all you had to do is kind of have like a kind of hot model on a billboard and, and that was your kind of brand. Like. <laughs> right. um, but because like everything has got so fragmented and multi-layered and kind of sensitized now but what you have seen Tommy Hilfiger do really really well is navigate the whole kind of like gender neutral um I think they were one of the first brands I worked with who had a non-binary shoot with a kind of um an actress well she identified as they um and they were very bold and um I mean it's funny because you can imagine this incredibly kind of like um engaged brand like Tommy Hilfiger doing a call with us you know for the Russian market and be like so we're going to do our non-binary campaign and, you know, me and my colleague who's Russian were just like, that won't work in Russia, but we'll send the release out and see what happens. Um, but they are doing really, really, I think Tommy Hilfiger deserves credit because they're just are able to kind of crest the wave of relevancy without being kind of contrived. Uh, and I think they've done that really well. And then they've done this really cool um, collaboration with Depop recently, all about sustainability and you can kind of um, recycle your clothes. They've got their own space on Depop. So, yeah, I think it tends to be the brands that are coming from, I don't know, I don't want to be cynical. I don't think it's necessity. I think I think they really do feel a sense of purpose towards their consumers. But yeah, that Russian press release didn't get, didn't get any pickup in Russia. <laughs> <laughs> You're right in that respect that they're definitely uh, the mo most outspoken. I know the first time this actually came to the fore for me was when I heard about Ben and Jerry's taking very political stands. And I know at that time that was really quite shocking and innovative and different and not very well received all around necessarily. So I think um, America definitely leads the way in that respect. Yeah, you have to really know your market, right? And be able to weigh those risks and say, you know, if we if we alienate this group of people, you know, it's okay, or you know, we're, we're not we're not worried about that. But I think Ben and Jerry's, as you mentioned, they've just recently um, had some issues in your area, in the, your neck of the woods, and and it's um, it's certainly you know been very controversial. Yeah, I mean, and I think the other issue that you have to raise is whether a company is a public company or owned by a CEO, because a CEO then affects his own bottom line, whilst others might have, you know, their shareholder interests, and they might revolt if you take a very strong stance. Um, There's so many things to think about. It's not just that. It's also your employees. Are they buying into your ethos? Do they agree? It might be something that they've never even thought that their company felt strongly about, and suddenly everyone's associating that company with a certain standard they might feel very violently against. So there's quite a quagmire to kind of navigate. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, it's interesting um, that sometimes the best thing is is not to not to jump in, not to say anything if you really have these concerns. Um, 
and it's it's not necessarily the the approach that that you know I'm promoting, <laughs> but I think that there there's definitely something to be said for you know as they say staying in your lane right and and doing what you do well and not you know and perhaps if you if there is an issue that you feel really strongly about finding another way to advocate for it without you know not through the brand or you know you can do funding to an NGO or something like that there are other ways but I, I think I'd like to say yeah I'd like to agree with you there but I think unfortunately um, this problem is only going to kind of not the problem but the issue of how to engage with kind of like social purpose is is not going away because I was I think if you look at kind of Gen Z this huge you know slightly unknown kind of <laughs> demographic that I read it's got um, 4.4 trillion dollars of spending power annually this kind of this group right and they're getting older and they're getting more engaged and you know they've grown up with digital natives you know they've had the pandemic mental health is super important with them i think you know unfortunately they are going to drive the agenda and i think for a brand you know i absolutely agree with you don't say anything unless you're kind of clear but i think a brand that doesn't have an active stance will increasingly kind of be called into action I was looking, I was thinking about this a lot before we kind of, when we're having, you know, thinking about this podcast. And I was thinking one of the brands that I really don't understand at all, like it never really kind of gives a purpose, right, is Amazon. And I don't, you know, this is, this is my personal opinion, all my professional, as we've said. Hmm. But, you know, I was just thinking yeah. about it, you know, for the, one of the world's most powerful companies, I couldn't tell you what Amazon stands for apart from delivering stuff quickly. I was just thinking that, like, I don't think that's going to be viable for too much longer. Yeah, right. When you think about how much money we all give them, <laughs> whether willingly or unwillingly. I don't think we feel very connected to Amazon. I think that's also a difference. I think, you know, Starbucks, you feel connected to your barista in the morning. So I think it also depends on, you know, what part of your life do you feel connected to? Do you feel like kind of identifies you whilst Amazon is a service that no one particularly feels connected to, but they just feel like they need to use. So I think that also depends um, on that as to how connected or how much of an identity focus that is to you as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, but if if a company does share their values, there's a point to connect, right? You can find a brand that that shares your values and you can build that, that sense of connection perhaps. But yeah, it's not quite... Um, not, I don't know. I feel like Amazon knows a lot about you. I mean, there there should be, <laughs> perhaps there should be more of a connection there. Maybe they, they know too much, right? But <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I personally think this Gen Z, they're so, I just think brands, it doesn't matter. Even if a brand has some sort of personality, uh, you know, kind of purpose and personality and, and a kind of reason, even if you don't necessarily, you know, com- you're not completely for kind of like, saving the oceans i think if a brand displays it's got a kind of human side to it you will you're probably more likely to connect with it well i'm actually doing a panel um podcast with three gen zers <laughs> so we'll have that coming up in a future episode where we can get their opinions for, firsthand and, and ask, ask them how their buying decisions and their employment decisions are driven by purpose and by um by brands that, that are engaging so i think what i really wanted to do with your expertise both of you is is look at some case studies we talk a lot about the the companies that we really like that we think are doing this well like patagonia and bombas and you know um uh, warby parker brands like that but there's some that get it really wrong (laughs) and i think it's worth looking at some of those case studies and and you know picking apart 
why they got it wrong, how they got it wrong. And then maybe we can give them a little bit of advice in case they're listening. <laughs> so the, the first one that comes to mind for me was the Pepsi ad that came out with one of the Jenners. And I have to say, I don't know which one it was, <laughs> but one of the Jenner models. Kendall. and uh, Pendle. Okay. Thank you, Natasha. And this was in the wake of the shooting of George Floyd. And they were, um, you know, seizing on this opportunity to perhaps give a message about peace, um, about uh, community. But instead, there was, from my perspective, a lack of authenticity to that ad. No one believed it. She wasn't a valid, um, a credible spokesperson for that. Um, the way it came across was um, just really poorly received. And I think they ended up pulling the ad, but I'd love to hear what you guys think of it. I could jump in. I mean, I just think when you're kind of Pepsi, there is an argument of actually kind of, you know, just gently staying in your lane, I think would be my advice to Pepsi. I think it's just like, it was too raw. There was too much going on. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. It felt like the world was on fire at that point. You know, I think people were like sieging the White House. This is not the moment, Pepsi, to make some kind of woke statement about, you know, with a Kardashian, sorry to say, you know, I think the Kardashians are fantastic. I'll come on to them later. But, you know, like, um, I just think it was just trying to do too much. And I think it probably did start out with quite a nice, you know, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, the intention wasn't to kind of create an ad that caused the global up and got pulled, right? I'm sure the intention was to kind of, you know, shine a light on, on an issue that was felt to be important. But um, I just missed I'm just confused why and curious why they didn't test it, that ad before it went out. I read about this and apparently they had just moved the creative agency in-house because they were finding that big ad companies were taking too long to turn around campaigns, do focus studies and things. So actually at the Lions Awards in Cannes, they'd actually um, talked about how wonderful it was that they'd taken it in-house. Everything was much cheaper and faster and they were able to turn things around. So I think this... And the agencies were actually countering it and saying, well, you know, if people in-house who've already drunk the Kool-Aid, or in this case, the Pepsi, are making an ad, they don't actually scrutinize it as much as people looking from the outside in. So I think that was a major mistake that they made, that they didn't get outsiders involved. They didn't get anyone who was not part of the idea who kind of um, created it involved in it and they just rolled it out pretty quickly and i think the other issue they were probably inspired i don't know when i was young there was this really famous song i want to buy the world a um a coke and it was it felt a little bit inspirational and political but it wasn't at all it was quite generic it was called the hilltop ad it was in gosh 1971 and it was quite an uplifting it felt a little bit political, but it wasn't. But I think at that time, it worked. Yeah, there were sort of Cold War overtones, and it was it was sort of a, a feeling of, of community. Um, another incident that came up recently was um, Adidas and, and Kanye West, um, where a spokesperson, uh, a person associated with the brand Adidas, um, made some what were classified as anti-Semitic comments and Adidas um, was questioned about their association with, with him. And after 
a good amount of time, <laughs> decided to end that partnership. What I think most people thought at the time was that they took too long and it looked like they didn't know what to do. And the fact that they actually did end it when they did sort of lost its strength because um, it took so long and it wasn't sort of an immediate reaction to this. Um, but I think it showed what I thought was was really the challenge that a lot of these brands are facing with how, how do we deal with these kind of things. Um, but again, I'm really curious to hear your take. Um, Natasha, what do, you, what do you think? I mean, one of the big things with this was obviously that this is a huge contract that's been ongoing. So I'm sure they were looking at the legal ramifications of it before they could even say anything. And secondly, I think this is a big financial decision. They had $500 million worth of stock. So, you know, it's very easy for knee-jerk reactions and things, but maybe they were just, I know this sounds bad, but they were being pragmatic and thinking, well, is it worth breaking this when we actually could make money out of it? Is it okay alienating X proportion if we, you know, the core fan base was still uh, standing by him. So maybe they were actually crunching some numbers and that's how long it took. Yeah, I think a lot of these things definitely come down to to the economic impact. Um, Sophie, what, what was your take? Yeah, I think this was a tricky one. I think this was kind of really unfortunately when a brand, it's more kind of crisis comms, this one, right? Because I think unfortunately Adidas, Adidas, I don't know how you say it, um, they just got caught up unfortunately in this guy's kind of like spiraling kind of mental, whatever it was, right? And I think, yeah, I think Natasha's completely right. I think it was really when you look at the losses and you can, you know, the, the Yeezy trainers now, I think you can't give them away. Um, so I'm sure that brands had to think long and hard about, you know, the association, the ramifications. But I would put that more in the crisis comms camp rather than Adidas kind of showing that they didn't have a kind of purpose. I think they'd be, I think Adidas had been quite generally quite good at that kind of thing. But all the eggs in one basket doesn't always work. The other thing that was interesting was all the other brands dropped him before Adidas did. Uh, Balenciaga. Um, his agency CAA and even Def Jam, which you would have thought would be okay with a bit of controversy, they dropped him before Adidas actually um, sent out a statement even. And their statement was also forced to cut ties, which I thought was an interesting, you know, phraseology. Yeah, yeah. It sort of lacks a bit of conviction, doesn't it? <laughs> but, you know, they made 10 years of money out of him. It was their biggest money maker. So, um, you know, the, I read a lot of articles about people saying, oh, you should vet, you know, the personalities before kind of getting into bed with them. But in the end, people do vet them and think, well, you know, if we make enough money out of it, if they then implode, perhaps that's not such a bad thing. So, you know, there's so many factors to take into account. It's not just, you know, you could vet all you want, but then you also need to make a decision as to in the short term how much money you're going to make. And in this case, in 10 years, that's a long time they had an association with them. And actually to think about it, it's not that it's these things kind of sometimes it sounds really kind of trite and I'm not trying to be, but it sounds really trite, but they, these things do blow over. I think for these brands, if you look at the trouble that Dolce & Gabbana got into in China, you know, and it was just, I think, what, three years ago, just before COVID. And then all of a sudden, you know, now Kim Kardashian again, um, you know, they've got this amazing, if you go to Piccadilly Circus in London right now, you've got Kimmy K like on, you know, on the billboard up there, you know, with her Dolce & Gabbana campaign. And it, it's, I think the brand, I think Natasha's right, there's a kind of effect of like, you know, we can, we, we've got all the best minds in the business, we can get back 
you know, the consumer's memory, sadly, is quite short. So it might seem like a disaster for one year, but you can probably get it back. And, you know, February, just this last month, there was um, rumors and lots of online chatter that um, Kanye might enter another agreement with them just to get rid of all the unsold stock. So um, he might be back, perhaps not in the same guise, but, you know, as I said, he might have bounced back. Well, you know, I, I might actually ask you both about something that's in, in the headlines today. Um, we're recording this in sort of mid-March, but there's quite a big controversy going on right now at the BBC where one of their presenters, and apparently their highest paid sports presenter, Gary Lineker, has um, made some comments about the UK policy on immigration. He was um, asked to take down the statements and because they were in violation of a, an agreement that he had signed with the BBC not to take these kind of personal stances on political issues. So it, it's coming across as a bit of a hit towards the Tory, current Tory government um, and that perhaps the BBC is defending uh, the, the government. But what has come out is actually quite a lot of support for Gary Lineker. I think you have to be careful when you, um, when you cross football fans. <laughs> um, and also a lot of instances where other people have said, you know, have, have let's say, crossed this uh, divide of taking a political stance and had no repercussions from the BBC. So I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on this current crisis. I think the BBC is a tricky one because... The whole point of the BBC, for anyone who's not British, Natasha, I'm sure kind of grew up with it like me. Um, but I think the whole point about the BBC is it, it has to be completely impartial, right? It's, it's, it can't take a political stance. So it kind of, on this one, I, I'm quite a fan of the BBC. I think Gary Lynn, I, you know, I think his, he, this is not the first time that he's made comments like that. He's quite outspoken. I think, you know, if, I think, you know, the BBC kind of did what they had to. You know, and I think, you know, yes, I mean, many people do believe, um, I'm sure they kind of really do kind of um, side with Gary's point of view. And, you know, he's a national treasure. He's done all these adverts over the years. You know, he's he's a golden boy. But I think in this instance, you just have to draw a line and say the BBC, we can't, you know, it's not about being political. We're completely apolitical. But we have to, you know, we have we can't be seen to endorse, you know, people on our, our biggest paid presenters can't have political views and air them on the BBC. The BBC is like the Queen. See, I completely disagree because, I mean, they were fine when he was on air criticizing Qatar. He had very strong political views and because they aligned with the BBC's, it was fine. So why is, and secondly, he's actually a freelancer. So that is a really key difference. He is not BBC staff. So he isn't subject to the same rules as BBC staff impartiality. Um, but what I think a lot of people feel that the BBC is doing is, um, is it the chairman who is a Tory party donor and has brokered sales? So it just feels like that there's, you know, one set of rules for anyone who is left wing and one set of rules for anyone who's right wing or supporting the conservatives. And I think that is a key issue. But I think Gary Lineker, sorry, Gary, Gary Lineker, he should know. It's not the BBC is not the place. I agree with you. I forgot about the Qatar comments. Right? It's not the place. Wasn't it? Um, and actually, I, I don't. It was just on his sort of personal Twitter or something. Yeah. And, and I think 
the argument was that because he is a freelancer, he's not actually BBC staff. So they do. And I think that was one of the issues that previous BBC personnel have come out and said that this is an area that we need to relook at. There's a gray area and it's never really been defined as to, you know, they're supposed to be kind of neutral, but it hasn't actually um, it's not clear cut. So that's a problem that the BBC have with their freelance contributors. Yeah. And I, I think that we probably will be finding people within corporations who have, um, you know, a, a platform start to speak out more and start to to take, you know, a stance on different things. And yeah, how is their their company going to respond to that? You know, do you distance yourself? Do you say, no, this person is, so, you know, speaks on our behalf? And there probably will need to be some policies put in place about what you can use your platform for. And if you want to advocate for something, you know, you're doing it on your own behalf or, you know, now that we all speak to everyone through Twitter and and Instagram, we have to be really careful about, you know, these messages that are coming out from, as you say, you can wake up at two in the morning and have a thought and, (laughs) and, you know, it's out there to everyone. Yes, it's out there. Well, Elon Musk is the is the poster boy of this, right? Apparently, he's personally cleaning up the, the Twitter algorithm. All my influencer friends tell me that you know, like Twitter is now the kind of pure. The algorithm is there, and he's fixing all the bugs and making sure it's true representation. So the way that you know, I think social media will also shift. You know, we had this really nice sanitized Instagram for a long time, right, Natasha? Like we just had, you know, people were communicating through quite safe tiles. And then you kind of have TikTok, which is much more about kind of alpha content. And then you have Twitter kind of pushing the agenda a bit more and trying to be more about kind of advocacy and truth. Um, so again, those the, the way that we're communicating is probably going to become a bit more raw, a bit less filtered. So yeah, it, it's a tricky time for brands, but I guess I need people like you, Siri, to help them through it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think it's good that we're having the conversation now so we can start thinking about it anyway. Um, so I wanted, you know, we, we've kind of touched on on um, something that I want to bring up next, which is both being in the Middle East um, and football, <laughs> which is, you know, recently um, Qatar hosted the World Cup. And I thought that was a really interesting moment where um, you had a lot of brands who were being... Um, associated with the World Cup and therefore associated with Qatar. And there are certain, obviously, there were issues there around um, LGBT community, around um, labor laws. And so I'm really curious from your vantage points, you know, how did the the national cultures and attitudes um, impact the, the you know, multinationals that were engaging and, you know, from your perspective, what, what did you think some of the, the ways that this succeeded and, and perhaps some of the, the ways that it, it failed? I think, you know, the most interesting thing I read about, well, one of the most interesting things I read about the World Cup was it, if you were kind of seeing it from a very Western perspective, you were slightly missing the point. I think it was just a really good example of how a global something that brings everyone together like football is truly global so this really you know i think if you're sitting in in the uk if you're sitting you know like someone like um, gary lineker who's in the states the fact that like football which is for everyone you know it's this completely inclusive sport right is in qatar is completely abhorrent to you right and you can immediately point to all the reasons why that's not good but then if you kind of come from the middle east if you come from morocco for example 
um, or if you come from kind of Southeast Asia or if you come from other parts of the world, I think they slightly, um, I think it's easy to kind of underestimate how, okay, you know, they were okay. You know, the fact that it was in Qatar was great. It was a new new country and they were kind of going in and they, they didn't really see the, see the issues in the same way that I think the Western democratic kind of was. So for me, it was just really interesting exercise and like, we just had to have a sense of perspective. Yes, it's very easy to point and challenge and say, you know, this is re- completely anti my values. This is against what football stands for and FIFA's corrupt and all the rest of it. But there was a huge market out there, um, I think, who did really attend the World Cup and love it. So I think it's it's good to take a global view on these kind of things. I'm not defending anyone or making judgments on anything, but I think it's really good to remember that it was a global event and there were millions of people around the world who actually kind of you know, really kind of bought into the fact that Qatar was, you know, Qatar had a chance to kind of put on a good event. So interesting one. I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, it just depends where you were. Um, if you were sitting somewhere like Dubai or even in Pakistan, the articles that have been, you know, raised that seem to have a lot of chatter in the UK. And also, I think, I'm not sure how widespread even in the UK it was. Um, I think there, as with everything, there are people who are, feel very strongly about um, things and that was quite had given been given quite a platform in western publications but globally i don't think it had as much of an impact and i think a lot of the brands that were associated with the world cup i think they were associated with the world cup and people didn't think that they were actually you know part of you know supporting the government necessarily and their views so i do think this is very much a perspective one mm-hmm. But then I do think that if you're someone like David Beckham, you probably need to kind of recognise that you are David Beckham and your fan base is in the States and the UK, right? Where again, you are kind of posh and Bex. Um, And probably if I was advising David Beckham, I probably would have said, listen, David, you know, like it's super cynical to kind of be the ambassador for, for the World Cup. It's not going to go down very well. And I think he probably didn't play it quite right. And then, you know, did you remember when the Queen died and he stood in the queue um, for hours like a normal person to watch the queen lying in state and then that just seemed quite cynical because it's like he was trying to kind of buoy up his um his profile at home whilst he was kind of then like leaping on a plane to go to Qatar so I think if you are a brand in that you need to understand though the lens by which that will be viewed from your kind of by your audience but then you know again, this is similar to the whole Kanye West situation that you know he has such a big fan base that love him Will they actually react to him going there? Will they, you know, that's another thing. It's quite difficult to gauge how many people would actually be influenced by that or whether does his personality actually create the opposite that, oh, he's going there, so it'll be okay, or he must have looked into this. So, you know, it almost legitimizes things. So it's it's a bit of a tricky one. I'm sort of interested for from both of you that if you had a CEO come to you and say, you know, um, I'm really interested in, uh, let's say, perhaps a bit controversial issue. So not not where it's if it's literacy or you know something where you know everyone can be can be in favor of it, but perhaps something um, nuclear energy or something like that. Or how do you how would you advise um, a corporate leader who might be interested to to jump in and and really um, take on some of these issues and speak out? It always starts with you know the the word it's overused but the word that i would always kind of start with is like what are your what's your kind of authentic values here right if you are really you know if you are a brand 
and really it's all about the environment and it's just kind of within your kind of DNA literally everything you do within this company really points yourself towards taking quite an active stance on that I think it's very hard to challenge you're quite unshakable in that um, but if you're a company and you're like coming to me and you're like do you know what ESG I think it's a thing um, what can I do to be carbon neutral you know like I, it depends who you are but I think the, the stronger the conviction and the stronger the kind of um persuasiveness of the leadership persuasiveness of the product persuasiveness of the kind of like the consumer journey the stronger i would advise a client to be but i would never just say you know you can't use you can't like piggyback off off agendas just because it makes you look good these gen z's you know i'm speaking as an old millennial but these gen z's they smell this a mile off right and the damage it can cause you to kind of get it wrong then just be silent don't get it wrong right but if you're a brand like lush um, you know, and you're like, we don't do social media. We just don't. I don't mind what it does to my bottom line. It's not it's all about mental health and it's just not who we are. Rock on, you know, go for it. But just do it 100%. So, but you've got to really, um, I think it's always, it is defined by the leadership. So you'd have a chat with the CEO and it's really kind of get under the skin of who he is. I think relevance is also important. I mean, is it relevant to your business? I think that also kind of strikes a chord. Um, for example, I think the CEO of H&M went to Bangladesh and spoke to uh, the prime minister about, you know, conditions in the factories and minimum wage for their workers. And that made sense because, you know, it's intrinsically linked to the business. Whilst um, I'm not saying either way, whether it's a good or a bad thing, but for example, um, the Starbucks CEO um, is very, you know, in favor of a gun control. So, you know, people might think, well, you know, why that's nothing to do with beans. So it, it, it also depends on that. But obviously, um, and I also come back to the fact that do, do they own a business or does it affect the bottom line and do they care? That's also important. Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, absolutely. There has to be, there has to be an authenticity. There has to be an alignment of values. And I think, also, then when you actually do engage, you have to do it well, right? You have to not just put your logo on something and say, oh, you know, here we are, you know, saving the whales, but engage in a way that's meaningful, that there's there shows um, a real understanding of the issue, right? Because these are complex things and, and not every CEO really wants to um, spend the time to learn about gun policy. It, you know, it, it, it's quite a complex thing. Um, or, you know, whatever it is. But I think if you do want to advocate well and you do want to really actually leverage your platform and use your, um, your, your corporate voice to, to further policy, then you have to know what you're talking about, right? And, and, you know, there's nothing worse than someone sort of reading a speech that they have nothing in common with. <laughs> Yeah, the PR person put it in front of them and say, you know, and the worst is when you're doing this just to get, you know, if a client ever comes to me and says, we need to do CSR because it's a good thing for PR. You're like, no, 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 no. You need to do CSR because it's a good thing for you. And it's how you create an emotional attachment with your consumer and demonstrate your purpose, right? If anyone comes to me and says, oh, I want to send a press release out. In fact, we planted 200 trees. Like, just don't. It might have worked 10 years ago, but it doesn't. It, it just doesn't work anymore. And greenwashing similar. I mean, everyone's jumped on the bandwagon, but so much of it is just lip service or doesn't feel at all authentic. Yeah. All right. Well, you two have been phenomenal. I'm going to wrap things up with our two wrap-up questions. So 
Um, first, from both of you, if you can give a recommendation of a book, a podcast, um, anything that you've kind of sp- spent time with recently that you thought um, was worthwhile. Um, Natasha, what are you, any recommendations? Um, so uh, with regards to a podcast, I was listening to How to Fail by Elizabeth Day. And I found that really fascinating. She basically asks her very, very diverse range of guests five times where they fail, um, how they've learned from it. And I think it's also interesting in this regard to see what people feel are failures, because that's not necessarily universal either. And also how men and women react to it very, very differently. Um, I know it's a stereotype, but it really comes through if you listen to enough of them, how um, women will, I feel, think of smaller transgressions as failures, whilst men think of them as um, quite major things. And you're like, well, of course, that's a failure. And you hear them kind of go, but is it a failure? I'm not sure. Um, and you're like, yes, yes, it is. It is. <laughs> so I think that it, it's a fascinating series. Mm-hmm. And I love the diversity of guests she has okay. on. Okay, fabulous. Um, and Sophie, what about you? Any recommendations? Yeah, I love Elizabeth Day. I've, um, I think she's fab. I, do you know what? I really think that we should, you know, recognize I just love Goop. It's, I just think, I think Gwyneth Paltrow, it, I just think she's great. I, I think, you know, my favorite one is when she talks to her husband about turning 50. Um, it's, it's quite a good one. Um, but I just think if you look at Gwyneth, she, she's just from the beginning. She's, you know, she's been ridiculed. She's been kind of, you know, kind of shouted down. She's been, but, you know, she believes in something and she believes in this idea of wellness and she believes in this kind of idea that women can kind of have rounder, better lives um, and live better. And I just think, actually, when you look at her podcast, I think there's like 360 hour long recordings that she's done. And that's probably my go-to if I'm, if I'm stuck. I like Elizabeth Day, but I, I do like the group podcast. Very, very good recommendations. And then just, um, this is your chance for a shout out. So a brand, a service provider that you think is um, doing well in this sort of ethical space that you'd like to just um, shout out to. Natasha? Well, I mean, I'm going to go quite old school. I'm going to talk about Stella McCartney. She was one of the first people to, you know, in 2001, she was no fur, um, no leather. And everyone really ridiculed her and felt like, you know, this was a ridiculous idea. Now it's so mainstream. And the other thing that I love about her is you don't just buy it for her ethical reasons. Her design is flawless. So it actually attracts a much wider demographic, people who just love design and love the things and might not even know it's faux fur or faux leather. So um, I really admire her for taking such an early stance. And I think I was one of the cynical people at the start. So <laughs> I'm going to eat my words and say, well done, Stella. Okay. All right. Shout out to Stella McCartney. Awesome. So. Can I just, for my, can I just go back to Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop? No, I just think, she, I just think, I don't know, but less about her, but I, I think about the brand. I do think the brand is one of these early, you know, before wellness was a thing, there was this woman telling you to kind of steam your whatever. And, and now she's built like a billion dollar business out of it. And now wellness is just kind of like the thing, right? Um, and I think they have kind of stuck to their principles and, um, and, and yeah, it just kind of kept going. I'm sure it wasn't easy. And again, she's just, you know, she was Shakespeare in love. She's the girl that cried at the Oscars. And now she's this kind of like global wellness figurehead. So I think she's done well. Amazing. 
Well, I would just like to thank both of you for joining us um, on The Corporate Activist. It's been a great conversation, and I, I really appreciate your time. I think you've given us a lot to think about. And we'll include um, links in the show notes, and if people want to reach out to you, I do recommend uh, particularly Natasha's Instagram feed if you ever want to go to Dubai. <laughs> but she, she eats well, I can tell you. She eats well. <laughs> um, so we'll, we'll include um, any links so people can find you on socials. And thank you again so much. Take care. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Corporate Activist. Please stay tuned for future episodes and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Corp Activist. We'd love to hear from you. And if you have questions of your own or need some advice about corporate activism, social impact, or political engagement, please do send them our way and we will respond in future episodes. The Corporate Activist is brought to you by Stance Advocacy Services and is produced by the good people at the Podcast Boutique. I'm your host, Siri Kalsa. Ciao for now.